I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of James, and uh, I just felt like the, uh, the Lord wanted me to share something with you specifically from James chapter 1, and so if you can open up there with me in your Bibles to the book of James, and that's going to be toward the end of your Bibles, so it might help to go to the book of Revelation and then uh, take a left, and, and then you'll uh, find James right after the book of Hebrews. Uh, my name is Austin, by the way. If you're new tonight, welcome. So glad that you are here. And uh, just pray the Lord's blessing upon you. And I pray if you're new tonight, or maybe you've been coming for a while, that the Lord would just really encourage you tonight. Um, and that you would just be ministered to by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't think it's an accident that you're here tonight. Uh, maybe you're here tonight and you didn't really want to be here tonight. But, you know, your friend brought you and you're like, you know, going to young adults, that young adults, that's awkward. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But your friend, you're like, no, just come. Um, I don't think it's an accident that the Lord has you here. Um, he wants to speak to your heart tonight. But listen, you have to humble yourself. And you have to say, God, I pray that you would just go to work on my heart like a surgeon and just fillet me wide open that you might speak to me by your Holy Spirit. Because the Lord loves you. He has so much for you. But you just have to humble yourself and say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I want to hear from you tonight. And the Bible says when you draw near to the Lord, he will draw near to you. And so who in this room is just ready to draw near to the Lord tonight? Okay, praise the Lord. Let's do it. Let's do it together. Uh, The title of our time together, I I pose the title as a question, and it's, Why Do Trials Come? And James answers this question in the very first few verses of James chapter 1. And it's kind of, you know, along the lines of why suffering? Why is there suffering in the world? James helps believers answer this question. Why do bad things happen? Why do difficult things occur? Uh, Why do trials come? This is our title for our teaching. And who is James? Um, James is, you know, there was the disciple James. James was uh, in kind of Jesus' close circle, um, Peter, James, and John. Uh, This is not that James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus because he has the same mom but a different dad. You know what I'm saying? So, same mom, different dad, and so James, the Bible says, uh, grew up as the half-brother of Jesus, in the same home as Jesus, but he did not believe Jesus to be the Messiah. And in the Gospels, James and some of Jesus' other brothers, they actually make fun of Jesus, um, poke fun at him, thinking he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, you know, that would have been, an, uh, that would have been a difficult thing to live up to. All right, if you're James, the younger brother, and you have perfect Jesus, you're growing up with perfect Jesus, and Jesus just does everything perfect. He gets complimented and no timeouts from mom and dad because he's perfect. He doesn't sin, so he doesn't do anything wrong. And then James comes along and they're like, why can't you be like your brother Jesus? That would have been a hard standard to live up to. So James, he's kind of, you know, he's a little bit um, just easily irritated by his half-brother Jesus, doesn't believe him to be the Savior, the Messiah. But the Bible says later in the book of Acts that James actually does then believe. He surrenders his life to Jesus, believing he is the Messiah, sent in to save the world from sin, and he actually becomes a pastor in a church in Jerusalem. Uh, His nickname, uh, according to uh, church tradition, was Old Camel Knees. That's not a nickname you want. I'm just going to be real with you. You know, all of us, we love good nicknames. Old Camel Knees, not on my list. Uh, and it's because the Bible, or not the Bible, but church tradition says that James had an amazing prayer life. 
And so just being in prayer constantly on his knees, his knees became calloused. And so, you know, walking around in a hot summer day in Jerusalem in your toga, your knees are just exposed. And so everyone would see, James, you got some rough knees. Uh, your old camel knees, we'll call you that, camel knees. So, you know, he has a, an amazing prayer life, according to church history. He was later killed for his faith and uh, thrown off of the temple, and he was beaten to death. So what a way to go out, you know? But this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, writes this book around the year A.D. 50. So if anyone ever asks you a Bible question, uh, if anyone ever asks you the Bible question of what was the first book, most likely the first book written in the New Testament, it's the book of James. Most likely the first book written in the New Testament. And the very first question that James helps his fellow believers answer is this, how should the believer respond when life gets hard? And the reason that this is the first answer he attempts, uh, the, the first question rather, that he attempts to answer is because life was hard um, in the first century as a Christian. Life was difficult. And when life is hard, the Bible refers to these hard times as trials. Everybody say trials. So the Bible calls these difficult times trials. Now, a trial or a difficult time, a difficult, difficult season in your life can do one of two things. A trial can either push you further away from the Lord or a trial can push you closer toward the Lord. But the choice is yours. When you face difficulty, it can either, if you allow it, push you further away from the Lord. The Lord hasn't been there for me. The Lord seems absent in my difficulty. And it can push you further away from the Lord. And our generation has become known as a generation of deconstructioners who are just deconstructing uh, their faith at the root of it. It's because life is hard and God has seemed silent and absent. Um, people have wandered from the faith because they don't know how to answer this question. Life is hard and it's difficult. And God hasn't seemed to really show up. And so what do I do? And so you can either allow your trial to do that, to push you further away from the Lord, or you can allow your trial to actually push you closer to the Lord and say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to defer to what your word says I should do. I'm going to trust you. So I'm going to draw near to you. And so James attempts to answer this question for the believers. Now, trials for them were a number of things, but probably number one and number two on the list was heavy taxation by the Roman government because Israel at this time was under heavy Roman oppression, and so they were experiencing heavy taxation by that Roman government. So a lot of these believers especially were materially poor, number one. And number two, being a Christian in the first century was extremely difficult. You faced persecution. Um, your life was threatened. And so this is the early church facing persecution. And so this is the trial that most likely James addresses. Now for you, I don't know what that might look like for you. Or, yeah, heavy gas prices, is, is, that's pretty bad. But I don't, know, I don't know what it might be for you. Maybe you were let go from work. Maybe you've had trouble finding work. Uh, maybe it was bad news that you recently received at the doctor's office. Health complications. Maybe the loss of a loved one. Uh, maybe you're here and you're married and you've experienced a miscarriage. Um, maybe you have been 
financially insecure and just living paycheck to paycheck, trying to find rent. Uh, I don't know what it might be for you. Maybe it's a broken heart going through a rough breakup, wondering what just happened. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe in your singleness, you just experienced loneliness and you've allowed Satan to take advantage of that loneliness and you just feel isolated. You don't feel like you have connections or friendships or community. I'm really glad you're here tonight. I love you and I'll be your friend. If you don't have a friend, I'm your friend. I'd love to meet you after the service. So I don't know what you might label as your current trial. Um, The first century had their trials and all of us individually in this room Uh, We either have come out of a trial or we're in the midst of one. And so I pray that as we just dig out the first four verses of James chapter one, that you'd be encouraged and uh, that you'd have some answers to this question. How should I respond as a believer to the trials in my life? So I want you to look at verse one with me of James chapter one. And I also want to say this before we dive into this. Listen, every trial... Every trial is not a reflection of a bad God. It's a reflection of a bad world. And you have to just come to terms with that. Every trial is not a reflection of a bad God. Oh, God is absent. God is silent. God's not there. I knew I couldn't trust him. All the doubts that I have are valid. Listen, every trial you experience is not related to a bad God. It's related to a bad world. The Bible says we live in a fallen world. You have to just understand this. You have to know this. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that mankind rebelled against God. God had set up mankind to thrive and flourish in marriage, in community, in relationships. And mankind, we screwed it up. And if you think you wouldn't have screwed it up, yes, you would have. We, we, We would have screwed it up, any one of us. I would have screwed it up. So Adam and Eve in the garden disobey God's one rule And so in mankind's rebellion, the Bible says that then there was a curse placed on the earth because mankind rebelled. And so we just now live in a broken, fallen world. That's why ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have illnesses, we have diseases, we have brokenness, we have wicked acts, wicked deeds, things you hear on the news, all the bad stuff. Listen, it's because we live in a fallen world. So the trial, the difficulty is not a reflection of a bad God, it's a reflection of a bad world. And we live in a broken world. And sometimes we make poor decisions because we're broken ourselves. And therein lies the problem as well, because we invite trials into our lives. We'll get into that in just a moment. But I, I need you to hear that. I, I'm not saying that God has caused the difficulty. Now, certainly he has allowed it and he's permitted it. Why? Let's answer that question as we dive into James chapter 1, verse 1. And I want to park it just for a minute on this first verse, because this is so awesome. This is so key. This is very big. James, it says, James chapter one, verse one, James, a bond servant. Everybody say bond servant. Now I'm reading out of the New King James version. It says bond servant. Your translation might just say servant. If you're reading out of the NLT, it says slave. This is James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Now I love this. James first identifies himself as a bondservant to the believers he's writing to, which the Bible says he's writing to believers scattered all across the Roman world. This letter would have circulated to a bunch of different churches. And he first identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, what is a bondservant? It's the Greek word doulos, 
And it literally means slave. So I like the NLT's translation of this word because it says James, a slave of Jesus Christ. And it's the Greek word doulos. Everybody say doulos. You know Greek. You're, you're a scholar. Greek. Doulos. It's, it means slave. Now, 30 to 40 percent, 30 to 40 percent of the Roman world were slaves. Now, they weren't slaves. It wasn't a slavery based on race. I know when you think slave, we kind of think of the tragic history of, of the early beginnings of the United States. Uh, slavery in that day, you were a slave for two reasons. Either you were a prisoner of war, or number two, you voluntarily uh, submitted yourself to someone else um, because you could not afford or pay back a debt. And so you basically voluntarily gave yourself up and you gave your labor uh, for, for pay. And so this is the Roman world. 30 to 40% of the Roman population were slaves. And again, either you are POW or you gave someone your labor to pay back a debt. And James here, he refers to himself as a doulos, would have been a very familiar term to the Roman world. I am a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. And so, in a nutshell, a doulos was one who gave his or her own desires up to the will of another. A doulos was one who voluntarily devoted their life to their master. And the believers that James writes to first come to know James as a doulos. I'm a slave. I love this because James, a pastor in the church of Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, listen, if I'm writing this letter, I'm saying Austin, the half-brother of Jesus, writing to the churches scattered across the Roman world. But what's super interesting about this is the first impression that he gives his readers is not that he has any place of prominence. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. He could have claimed that. But he, he wants the readers to know, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Do you want to follow my example? I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. This is the very first impression he's, his readers get. Now, in our society, in our world, first impressions mean everything, Right? You have an interview for a job, you want to make a great first impression to your boss. We place such a heavy emphasis on first impressions. Now, I'm not necessarily saying not to. You, you go for an interview, you certainly want to make a, a good first impression. You have a crush here at Young Adults, you see a cute girl, see a cute guy, you want to make a good first impression. And you start to do things that you just never would have done otherwise. You start to just be weird. You know, this, when I first met Morgan, I wanted to make a good first impression. And I started doing things that just other people were like, why are you acting like this? You don't act like this when you're not around Morgan. I was like, I know, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with my arms. I don't know what to, sup, sup girl. Yeah, you know, guys, we always do the weirdest things, you know, right? You, you want to make a first, first, good first impression to a girl you like, you kind of lower your voice a little bit. You want to, you know, I don't know why I did that. I don't know. You know, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. But, you know, you know what I'm saying, guys. You just, you want to make good first impression. So, you, you know, you kind of do this. You tap the toe. 
toe tap. Girls, if you see a guy doing this, the toe tapper, it's a good chance. Good chance he's got a crush. All right, lowers his voice a little bit, crosses the arms, goes to the gym, working out, kind of like doing this around you, kind of just like got a little bit more flow, kind of touching his chin, rubbing the chin, okay? All right, these are all things that I did, and I, you know, actually it worked. So guys, go ahead, do it. Just whatever, feel, whatever feels good, whatever feels right, you know? Just kind of this stuff. So we do weird things because we want to make good first impressions. Lady, I don't know what you girls do. You do weird things too. I'm not a girl, so I don't know what you girls do. But all of us, we want to make good first impressions. And this is what our society places a heavy emphasis on. Make a good first impression. So you got to look good for the job. And you, when you go to work, you got to make sure that you're impressing the boss. And the first time the boss meets you, you want to just put off this vibe that you're professional, you're intelligent. Same thing with a relationship. But James here, he says, the very first thing that comes off the page, says, my name is James, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Because this is, this is how I want you to know me. This is how I want to be identified. And this is the first impression that the people get when they read James's letter. He doesn't put this high status. Listen to me, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, okay? I've got a lot of weight in the realm of Christianity here. He says, no, I'm a doulos, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And this is the first impression that he gives. And this should be the disposition of every believer. That we should think of ourselves in this manner. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I don't matter. There's nothing about me that is of any importance in and of myself. The, the, the only reason I have any value or worth is because I belong to Jesus. That's the only reason that I am worth anything. And our society, even sometimes Christianity, pushes out this this kind of motto that you're worth it. No, you're not. And you need to, you need to just gra- grasp this. You need to get this. Seeing sometimes even in the realm of Christianity, you're worth it and you're enough. I'm not worth it and I'm not enough. That's exactly why I need Jesus Christ because I'm not enough in and of myself. I'm not. And so if you feel like you're here tonight and you're just not enough, you're not adequate, you, you, you don't have worth in and of yourself, you're exactly right. You're not adequate. You're not enough in and of yourself. This is the beauty of a relationship with Jesus because in Christ I am enough and in Christ I am complete and in Christ I, 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 I'm adequate and in Christ I have worth and I have value, but it's all in Christ. So James says, my name is James, but I'm a slave of Jesus Christ and this is how I want you to know me. And this should be our disposition as believers. I'm a slave of Jesus. I belong to Jesus. No longer do I operate based off of my own desires and my own will and my own passion, I, based on the, I, I, I operate based on, what it, Jesus, what do you want for my life? How do you want to operate in my life? What do you want? I want to be obedient to you. What do you want for my life, God? God, what's your will for my life? I just want to follow you. I don't want to follow my own, my own desires or passions or I don't want to follow my own dreams. Lord, I want you to shape who I am. I want to follow your purposes for my life, not my own. Because I belong to you now. And this is what the Bible says. When you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, Paul says, no longer do I live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And this is a beautiful thing. Because Christianity levels the playing field. Are you black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated? I don't care. 
I, I want you to know Jesus Christ, have a relationship with Jesus. And when you submit yourself to Jesus and say, I belong to Jesus now, I'm identified as a slave of Jesus, I belong to you, you're my master Jesus, that's the only thing that matters. And then you will live life with just much more purpose, much more freedom, because why? Because I don't belong to me anymore, because I've tried to be my own master and it doesn't go well. I try to make decisions all on my own without consulting my master Jesus, and it doesn't go well. And then when you say, okay, God, I'm going to stop doing things my way. I'm going to follow you. Your way is best. I trust you have my best interests in mind. I'm going to follow you. Oh, my goodness. Life is awesome. So I want that for you. So all of us, we need to kind of just recenter our, our mind on, I don't belong to me. I'm Jesus's. And, and this is what's awesome, too, is James, he says, I'm a doulos, I'm a, I'm a slave of Jesus, so Jesus is my master, we need to get this, too, because a lot of times we think of Jesus as just a school advisor or as a buddy, All right, I go to God when I need something or I need some advice, and when I pray, when I seek God's advice, I may or may not take it, because at the end of the day, I will do what I feel is best for my life, and a doulos does not take recommendations from their master, a doulos follows orders, even when it's uncomfortable. And so it is a challenge in my life because I am a sinner. And even though I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, the Bible says in Galatians chapter five, that there's this war internally, there's this battle because I want to follow my own desires. But now that I'm indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, I also want to please the things of the spirit. And so it's a daily struggle. And so you, you and me, we just need to pray, God, help me daily just to submit to you. You're my master. I'm not my master. When I gave my life to you, I said bye to the old life. I said bye to Austin. And I said, I'm, I'm all yours, God. So you're my master and help me to just be obedient to you now and not obey my own desires. So this is how James identifies himself. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where he answers this, this question. How should the believer respond when life gets hard? I honestly think that's the first step, just to respond by humbling yourself. But I didn't include that in my points. But humble yourself and say, God, you're my master. Life will go much easier. Verse 2, this is what he says. This is awesome. He says, my brethren, my brothers, my sisters, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So I find this very interesting. He says, my brothers, my sisters, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He is already trying to have his readers understand that Facing difficulty, that falling under various trials will happen. It's not a matter of if life will get hard. It's just a matter of when. So he says, my brothers, count it all joy when, not if, but when. And this is what Jesus would say too. He says, uh, when you have trouble, he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus addressed his followers under the assumption that life will just be difficult. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He says, consider it, if I could paraphrase, he says, consider it an opportunity to exercise joy when life gets hard. Consider it or count it an opportunity to exercise joy when life gets hard. 
says, when life gets hard, when you face difficulty, and, and I could fill in the blanks, when, when, when you feel financially inst- uh, unstable, when you just have gone through that uh, rough breakup, uh, received bad news at the doctor's office, and you've received a health complication, fill in the blank. I don't know what, what, what you might be going through, what you have been through, but capture that thing and then say, consider an opportunity to exercise joy in the midst of this. That phrase, consider it, or the New King James says, count it all joy. That phrase, count it, it's a Greek word, hageomai, and it means to have authority over, or to rule or govern over. It's used of any kind of leader, chief, or commander. So in other words, you can't control the fact that you'll face difficulty in life, but you can control how you respond to it. You have complete authority over your response to how you face difficulty. You know, in like medieval times, when uh, like a king would exercise his authority over a knight, you know, and they do the whole thing, they do the whole knighting kind of a thing. You've seen it in the movies when a king would dub a knight and he'd exercise his authority over a knight and he'd, he'd take the sword and he would say, I dub thee knight in King George's council. I deem thee worthy of knighthood. Arise. Okay, he was exercising his authority over this knight. Well, the Bible says that when you face difficulty, that you are able to exercise authority over how you, re- you respond to the situation. You don't have authority over if you face difficulty. Difficulty is going to come. He says, when you face trials of various kinds, you don't have control over that. But what you do have control over is how you respond to it. And so James says, consider it joy. He says, I want you to feel the freedom to exercise authority over your response. You need to take control over your response here. You need to be the governor of how you respond to this situation. By the power of the Holy Spirit, not by my strength, not by my power, not by my abilities, but as believers, we are indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, James says, you can count it all joy. You can deem this as an opportunity to exercise joy. You can deem this as an opportunity to exercise joy and to display joy in the Lord. Use this difficult time, whatever you're going through right now, use this difficult time to put your joy at work. Now, I'm not saying, and James is not saying, just to be a fake Christian, just to have like a fake Jesus face on, just pretending like everything's awesome when life is difficult. He's not saying to be fake or phony. But what true biblical joy is, is you can have this calm, reassured confidence and trust in the Lord in the midst of difficulty. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is circumstantial and dependent on the ebb and flow of your circumstances. But joy supersedes your circumstances. Even though this is hard right now, I'm going to choose to exercise joy in the Lord. To know that Jesus is in control, therefore I don't have to worry because he is sovereign. To have joy means you can have just this calm trust and confidence in a good God who will see you through your bad circumstances. Because you know that no matter what you face, God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will see you through it. When you invite him in and say, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help me to respond 
in an appropriate biblical way? This is what the Bible says in Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Isaiah 41, 10, God said, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so even in just those two verses, you see, God, you're in control. You're going to see me through this. Therefore, I can just have this calm confidence in you. I can put my joy on display, even in the midst of the difficulty. So I have three points. Why do trials come? James answers this. Number one, to mature us. Why do trials come? James says that trials come God permits us to experience difficulty in order to mature us. This is what he says, my brothers, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect. Now, it doesn't mean to be without sin. The NIV translates this to be mature that you may be mature or perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James says that God allows trials to come. Why? For our maturation. God wants to use the difficulty to mature us, to grow us up. And some of us, and I've been guilty of this myself, just our growth has been stunted in the Lord. Because instead of having confidence in the Lord, we complain. And... And in the difficulty, again, I'm not saying God has caused it, but he's permitted it. Why? To mature you. Because he says, listen, I I need you to mature and grow up. And I need you to see this difficult circumstance as an opportunity to grow up and to mature in me. That's what God desires for us. And as much as we don't like to go through the bad times, it purges us of this self-reliance. The Lord has done a wonderful work in my life by purging me of this self-reliance. So what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9, he says, we were under great pressure. So this is Paul's trial. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened. Why? That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God wants to prove his power to you. He wants to show up in your life in ways you've never even seen. But sometimes in the midst of our difficulty, we just complain to God. God, why, why, why? Why am I going through this? And he wants to show up in your life and to prove his power to you. Bible says that in our weaknesses, God is made, God's power is made perfect. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power might rest on me. He wants to show his power to you. But you have to just humble yourself and say, okay, God, you want to use this difficulty to mature me and grow me up. Show yourself to me. And Paul says that the difficulty he faced was so that God would purge him of self-reliance. He says this happens so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. We esteem in our culture people who are self-made. But the problem with self-made people is that they're self-reliant. And God does not want a self-reliant person. He wants a person completely reliant and dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. Because God God gets no glory when you accomplish things in your own effort, 
with your own pride. The only way God gets glory is when you submit all that you do to the Lord and say, this wasn't because of me, but when I relied on the Lord and his power and his strength, when I relied and pressed further in to the Holy Spirit, asking God to show up in my life, that's where God received more glory and God could use me to the fullest extent. Why? Because I humbled myself. I wasn't self-reliant, but I was relied upon the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants the humble and he wants us to rely on the Holy Spirit. Billy Graham said this, listen, it's a long quote, but I want you to listen to this. Billy Graham said, if life were all easy, wouldn't we become flabby? When a ship's carpenter needed timber to make a mast for a sailing vessel, he did not cut it in the valley, but up on the mountainside where the trees had been buffeted by the winds. These trees he knew were the strongest of all. Hardship is not our choice, but if we face it bravely, it can toughen the fiber of our souls. Number two, why do trials come? For our correction. Number one, to mature us. Number two, to correct us. Sometimes we invite trials and difficulty into our lives by our own sinful choices and decisions. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Some, why do we face difficulty? Sometimes because we just make bad decisions. And I've made plenty of poor choices and decisions in my own life where God has then come alongside by his Holy Spirit and he's corrected me. Now, here's the key is not to neglect that correction, but to receive it. And I've done both in my life where I have made a foolish decision. I have invited the consequences of that foolish decision into my life. And then when I've received correction, either by the word or maybe God spoke through a person, maybe through a parent, I neglected that correction because I was too proud. And you will never grow up in the Lord as long as you neglect correction. And so why do trials come? Sometimes simply because we make foolish decisions that then lend itself to just the natural ramifications and consequences. So hard times come in because we made a poor decision. But listen, God is gracious. The Bible says that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. When we sin, when we fall short, when we invite consequences into our lives through our own foolish decisions, God does not hold a finger at us in condemnation. But he says, if you would repent and turn from your sin, my arms are wide open to reconcile you back to me. Because he's gracious, he's loving, he's compassionate. The Bible says he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love. So when you sin, God's grace is so deep that he desires to pull you out of that pit, but it sometimes involves correction. Don't despise it. Don't neglect it. God uses our difficulty for our correction so that we wake up, so that we don't live in our sin any longer. But don't see God as just this killjoy. God loves to be angry with me. Listen, every good parent disciplines the child that they love. You, you know this when you were a kid. You can even think of it now, the stupid thing you did 10 years ago, living at home. And if you had a good dad or a good mom, they gently corrected you. Why? Because they loved you. It's a bad dad, it's a bad mom that just lets their kid do whatever they want. That's a bad dad, that's a bad mom. Or you just let your kid roam around, do whatever they want. Irregardless of the consequences, that's a bad parent. 
But a good parent steps in because they know the consequences. Why? Because they have more experience. They've been there. And now as an adult, you look back on the things you did thinking, now I know why my parents disciplined me. I get it now. I was being so stupid. But in my ignorance and arrogance, my, my, in my immaturity, I neglected their correction. But I realized now their correction was because they loved me. And listen, when God corrects you, it's not because he loves to just be angry. And he loves just to be father killjoy. It's because he loves you. Because he doesn't want you to continue in that path that will only lead to your destruction. God's word was not put in place as just this list of rules. God put his word in place for our benefit because God created life. And therefore he knows how we will best flourish in life. So he gives us parameters and boundaries on how to flourish in life. And when we follow God's word, when we adhere to God's word, when we're obedient to it, just watch. Life will go well for you. But when we fall outside of God's best and we go outside of God's boundaries for our sexuality, for our relationships, whatever it might be, we will experience harmful consequences. And so God will use trials. He will use that difficulty to correct us. Why? To bring us back into the fold. Because He loves us. Hebrews 12, 6. The writer says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, my daughter, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not lose heart when He rebukes you. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. He chastens every son or daughter that He receives. So don't despise or neglect the correction. Sometimes, not all times. Now, I don't want you to think, is the bad thing happening to me a result because of my sin? Not necessarily. Okay, some people have the question of, did I receive this tumor because of a sinful decision I made? I'm not saying that. Again, sometimes God permits things into our lives. Why? Only God knows. Sometimes, yes, we invite difficulty into our lives through our sinful decisions. I'm not saying that every difficulty is because of sin. I'm saying sometimes we invite difficulty into our lives because of our sin. Sometimes, again, God allows difficulty to mature us because he wants us to depend on him and not on ourselves. Sometimes, yes, God allows us to experience the harmful consequences of our sinful decisions. But he allows this in order for our correction. Finally, number three, we'll end it here. Why do bad things happen? Why do trials come to direct us? Number three, sometimes trials come into our lives, not necessarily because God wants to mature us and teach us, not necessarily because God wants to correct us, but sometimes because God wants to direct us. And I'll give you an example of this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 27 and 28. Paul, he's an apostle of Jesus. He's a missionary. And the Bible says that Paul is making his way to Rome, but God uses a storm on the Mediterranean Sea because Paul was sailing there. God used a winter storm to redirect Paul to the island of Malta. (coughs) Excuse me. And Paul, while he was on Malta, God used Paul to heal several people on that island. 
It's an awesome story. Go read it. Acts chapter 27 and 28. Now, Paul's end goal was to get to Rome. And through this difficulty, through this winter storm, when he was redirected to the island of Malta, you think that Paul could have complained to God? God, what are you doing? You placed upon my heart to get to Rome. What are you doing? What's going on? Why am I facing this difficulty? I thought that following Jesus was going to be easy and awesome. But now you're having me go through this winter storm in the midst of the Mediterranean, shipwrecked on this island called Malta. Sometimes God allows difficulty to redirect us for a season. This is what he did with Paul in the book of Acts. He redirected Paul's course and he used a winter storm to do it so that Paul was then shipwrecked on Malta so that he could heal, by the power of the Holy Spirit, several people on that island who were sick. And then after that, he got him back on track to Rome. And so listen, sometimes in life, God allows difficulty to happen. Don't complain. Don't ask, you know, in this frustrated tone, God, what in the world are you doing? All right, but sometimes God allows difficulty into our lives to redirect us for his purposes. And sometimes you can't always see it in the midst of it. But then looking back in hindsight, you see, okay, this is why God redirected me. This is why God used that storm in my life. And so figuratively speaking, God will allow storms to enter into our lives. And sometimes he allows that difficult storm to enter. So he redirects our path because he wants us to go to that one person or that one place to be a minister of the gospel to that person or that place or that situation. So why do trials come to mature us, to correct us, and to direct us? The storm didn't come because Paul had done something wrong. It was just the tool, so to speak, that God used for his purposes. No matter what form of trials, no no matter what form trials might come in, God promises that he will bless the person who perseveres. And this is what he says in James 1.12. He said, Blessed is the man or woman who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So let's just take this minute or two. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. And if you're in the middle of difficulty right now, I don't know why the Lord has allowed it. Maybe to mature you, maybe to correct you, maybe to direct you. But now's the time where you just say, okay, God, I'm going through this difficulty. You know it's between you and the Lord. And right now you just say, God, I don't know why you've permitted or allowed me to go through this, but I defer to you. I trust you. And I pray that you would use this this difficulty to mature me, to grow me up. So I wouldn't rely on myself. I rely on you. Correct me, Lord. If there's anything in my life that dishonors you, correct me, Lord. Bring me back to you. Open my eyes that I might turn and repent of it come to you. Confess it as sin. Maybe he wants to direct your path. He's allowed difficulty to get your attention because he wants to redirect you to that person or that place. So I don't know what God is doing in your life, but just take this next minute or two and just talk to the Lord. Just be real with him. Just open up to him and say, God, I'm going through this difficulty. Meet me now. Encourage me. I'm so discouraged right now, Lord. Encourage me. Mature me. Correct me. Direct me, whatever you want to do, by your Holy Spirit, I'm here. I submit to it. You're my master. I'm your due loss. Just pray. Just seek him now. Just go to the Lord.
you're going through something difficult right now, just every head bowed, eyes closed. If you're going through something difficult right now and you just need encouragement, would you just raise your hand? Lord, hands raised all across the room. Meet them right now and encourage them by your Holy Spirit. Lift up their heads. Minister to their hearts in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their frustration. Meet them right now and fill them full and fresh with your Holy Spirit that they might see this as an opportunity to display joy in the Lord. Lord, you see the hands raised. You see the humility of their hearts. Encourage them, Lord. Lift them up. Lavish your love upon them right now in the name of Jesus. And fill them with your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. Many things in this room, only you know them, Lord. I pray that you would use the trials in our lives to mature us, to correct us. Lord, to mature us, to grow us up in you so that we wouldn't be self-reliant. To correct us, Lord, if there's any sin in our lives, would you just open up our hearts and eyes that we might turn from sin, confess it to you. You are so eager to forgive You are so gracious to us. You love us. Maybe to direct us, Lord, to guide us. Like you guided and directed Paul, Lord. Guide and direct our steps that we might pursue the purposes and plans you have for us. Here we are, Lord. We are your servants. We're your slaves. We're your doulosses, God. We're here just to surrender to you. You're our master, Lord. Help us to be obedient to you, Lord. And as we obey you, we trust that you will be faithful to direct our steps, to guide us into your will, to grow us up in you. God, we love you. We thank you for being so gracious to us, for being so loving, Lord. Here we are. Use us. Use us for your plans, for your purposes. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. Thank you for being our Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. And everybody together said, Amen.